But as we come now to the reading of God's word, our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 1. Continue, or we'll begin uh, looking at the gospel according to Luke in these next several weeks uh, leading up to Christmas, and Lord willing, we'll continue in the new year. And so uh, before we, we jump into all of those Advent or uh, Nativity texts in Luke 1 and 2, we uh, want to get our bearings and understand how all of this fits into the book as a whole. And that's what this little preface in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 does for us. It um, introduces the, the whole book. And so as we start our study of Luke, we want to consider these words. I invite you to follow along on page 1016 in your pew Bible, where we'll read this short preface to the gospel according to Luke. He says, in as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. It's a rather convenient introduction as it, it tells us why Luke wrote this book. He, he wrote it to Theophilus, a, a God-fearing Gentile who was likely this book's benefactor, so that him and others like him might have certainty. So that him and others like us or others like Santiago and Nicolas and Valentina might have certainty, might not doubt that God's plan was indeed being fulfilled in the things that happened concerning Jesus. The things that he says in verse 1 were accomplished among them. Or that word that's translated, um, if you have an ESV in front of you, as, as accomplished, um, really that, that word is, is um, elsewhere translated fulfilled. He wants Theophilus and, and all of us to have assurance about the things that Christ, verse 1, fulfilled. And so in order to do that, verse 3, he writes an orderly account saying, it seemed good to me also, having followed all of these things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Verse 1, concerning the things that have been accomplished among us. As the purpose of the gospel, according to Luke, is to provide an orderly account to give assurance about the things that Jesus fulfilled. And so as we look at this preface to give a, a sort of introduction to the whole book, I want to focus on, on three phrases from it this morning. Um, first of all, an orderly account. Second, of the things that have been fulfilled. And third, to give Assurance, an orderly account of the things that have been fulfilled to give us assurance. That's what Luke tells us in his preface he's going to do for us in the next 24 chapters. And so I want to sort of survey that this morning. It won't be uh, quite a, a typical sermon, but we'll, we'll survey the whole gospel through the lens of these three phrases in Luke's preface. First of all, that it's an orderly account. What does Luke mean by that? In verse 3, it, it, it seemed good to me, he says, 
having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account. It means quite simply that there is a, a structure to the book. This is not just some haphazard arrangement of stories that he's, he's heard about Jesus, but he has carefully and meticulously arranged them with a, a certain logic to communicate a message. You understand that the way we, we order things matters. You just think of our, our liturgy. It's not just a random assortment of unrelated songs and then some announcements and a message, but we, we seek to, to order everything we do around the logic of the gospel, where a holy God summons us into his presence as we, we then come into his presence and, and behold him. We're reminded of our sin and our need to confess, and then assured of his grace in the pardon he pronounces and in the preaching of the gospel and in the, the sacraments, so that then in light of his grace, we might respond with our, our gifts and our songs of praise and be sent out to serve him. There is a, a gospel logic, sin, salvation, service, guilt, grace, gratitude. The way that we order things is intentional. The order itself communicates a message. And in the same way, the, the order of the book of Luke communicates a message. And as with our liturgy, it is a message about the gospel. We're, we're just like our worship, it focuses on the person and work of the Son of Man. He is the focus and what he has come to do. And so in the first few chapters, Luke is going to make, make very clear that, that we understand just who this Jesus is. He is the virgin-born Son of Mary, yet also the divine Son of God, revealed as the one in his genealogy and revealed as the other at his baptism. Both human and divine. He is the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. Luke's favorite designation for Jesus, used some 25 times throughout this book. These opening chapters, especially, we see very clearly who Jesus is. And then in the next section of the book, we see what he has come to do namely, to proclaim good news to the poor and liberty. To the captives, that's the, the sort of purpose statement that he gives for his ministry right at the beginning of it in chapter 4, verse 18. As he says just a chapter later, still the beginning of his ministry in chapter 5, he says he has come to those who were spiritually sick to call them to repentance. That he is the great physician who comes to heal soul-sick Sinners, And in both of these programmatic mission statements at the beginning of his gospel, he, he's, he's showing that his focus in his ministry is going to be on the lowly and the outcast. It's going to be on men like Levi, the tax collectors and the sinners with whom he feasts, women with questionable reputations like that, that sinner in Luke chapter 7. It's going to be on, on Gentiles and on the poor and, and the lowly. This is who Jesus comes to save. And these are the kinds of people who we therefore meet in his Galilean ministry in chapters 4 through 9. So chapters 1 to 3, Luke shows us the, the coming of the Son of Man into the world. Chapters 4 through 9, he, he shows him seeking out the, the poor and outcasts to save them. And then starting toward the last half of, of chapter 9, Luke begins to show us how Christ will save them. 
That's twice in chapter 9 at verse 21, and then again at verse 43, Jesus begins to foretell his death. Then in verse 51 of Luke chapter 9, it says that Jesus then set his face toward Jerusalem. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is one of the most important verses in the book. This is the most significant turning point. Luke 9.51, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And we know that this is important because Luke is going to keep on bringing this back up. Just two verses later, again, in, in verse 53. The people did not receive it because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And then twice more in Luke chapter 13, he's, he's going to repeat this again in Luke 17 and Luke 18. The, the, the longest section of the book is this journey to Jerusalem from Luke 9 to Luke 19, where when Jesus gets there, he'll die. She keeps on reminding his disciples And so in the sheer length of this journey toward Jerusalem and in the the repeated geographical markers, Luke is making the point in this, this long central section that the culmination of Christ's saving mission is in the things he'll suffer in the city that kills the prophets. Luke is ordering this whole book around the journey of the Son of Man to Jerusalem to die which he then gets to in chapters 19 through 24, where when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he is rejected and eventually crucified, but then rises again. And the book ends with him ascending into heaven as the suffering but now exalted Son of Man. That's Luke's orderly account. The Son of Man comes into the world to seek and to save the lost, as he says in Luke 19.10, and the way that he does that is through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection and ascension. That's going to be the content of this orderly account, this narrative of which Luke speaks in Luke 1 verse 1 a narrative centered around the person and work of Jesus, most especially his journey to Jerusalem to die. And so as we make our way through this book, we must not lose sight of that. It's an orderly account about the Son of Man seeking and saving the lost by giving his life. The entirety of the book is structured to make that point. And second, Luke also wants us to see that this this point about the Son of Man coming to seek and to save the lost by going to Jerusalem to die, that that point is, in, in fact, the fulfillment of everything the Scriptures foretold. It seems that Theophilus, though a Gentile is well-versed in the Old Testament Scriptures, and Luke wants him to see that, that the things he's been taught about Jesus in verse 4 are in fact the fulfillment or accomplishment of all that Moses and the prophets foretold. We know that this is what Luke is doing when he uses that word accomplished or fulfilled in in verse 1 because not only is this where he begins in the very first verse, but, but it's where he ends in Luke 24 where after Jesus' death and, and resurrection, those two disciples are walking along the road to Emmaus and they're, they're confused about this son of man who died in Jerusalem. And what does Jesus say to them? 
But was it not necessary that the Son of Man should suffer and then enter into his glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted for them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself? And then again, in the very next scene, just in case we missed it, Jesus appears to the eleven. And he tells them, these are the things that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's the same word that he uses in 1 verse 1. It must be fulfilled. And he then opened their minds to understand the scriptures that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And so this book ends by telling us everything in that orderly account that Luke just gave us is the fulfillment, the the accomplishment of the entirety of the Old Testament. Luke makes that point further in the 33 direct quotations of the Old Testament and over 400 allusions to the Old Testament in these 24 chapters. Much like we saw a few years ago with Matthew, Luke is a scribe well-trained to bring new treasures out of the old to show us how the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. How the suffering and glory of Jesus are the key that makes sense of the whole Old Testament and bring the story of Israel to its climax. That's what Luke is going to show us. But whereas Matthew showed us that by focusing on Jesus as a new David, Luke will show us Christ not only as the son of David and son of Abraham, but Christ as the second Adam and son of God. He'll show us Jesus as the one who who leads us on a greater exodus from Satan, sin, and death, and show us Jesus as the one who ushers in the year of jubilee and brings feasting and rest for all God's people. So just a few of the themes from the Old Testament Luke is is going to weave throughout his gospel to give us assurance that the things that have happened concerning Jesus are in fact the yes and amen to all God's promises, the fulfillment of all that Moses and the prophets foretold. So I just want to highlight and trace a few of these themes with you as we think about Luke's orderly account of Christ's life, death, and resurrection and ascension as the fulfillment of of all of redemptive history. First, this theme of Christ as a new Adam. Luke will uh, begin to bring this out, especially in in chapters three and four, where just like Matthew had a genealogy, remember in Matthew chapter one, those first 17 verses give us this long genealogy. Luke does the same thing, but if you remember Matthew's in Matthew chapter one, he he started with, with Abraham and emphasized throughout it that Christ is not only the son of Abraham, but especially the the son of David. He even emphasizes that in in the uh, number of of generations that he gives, hinting at the the numerical value of Jesus' name. So the focus in Matthew chapter 1 is Jesus as a new David, but in in Luke chapter 3, that's not quite what Luke does when he gives us this genealogy, but, but rather he goes all the way to Adam. And instead of proceeding from Adam or Abraham down to Jesus, Luke inverts the order so that the conclusion of of Christ's genealogy takes us right to Adam. Notice in Luke 3, 38, the genealogy ends, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. He He is connecting the identity of Jesus with the very beginning of humanity. 
This is another evidence of Luke's very intentional structure where, where just after he traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to Adam, the progenitor of humanity, he then goes right into Christ's wilderness temptation where as a new Adam, Jesus passes the test that Adam failed. Remember, Adam was tempted by Satan in the garden. So here in Luke 4, Christ, a new Adam, the son of Adam, is tempted by that same serpent in a much tougher garden. Whereas Adam underwent his temptation in a lush garden paradise where he had food aplenty and the companionship of his wife, Jesus does so all alone in a desolate wilderness where he's been fasting 40 days and is in the last stages of starvation. And yet he succeeds where Adam failed and begins to wage the war on Satan that Adam failed to. He passes the task that Adam failed and resists each of the temptations that Adam fell for. This is the beginning of Jesus fulfilling the covenant in which Adam failed. He comes from the line of Adam as a second Adam, though conceived by the Holy Spirit, and thus not inheriting Adam's sin nature, and passes the test that Adam failed, a much harder test, to mark a whole new beginning. As mankind fell in Adam and thus earned the death that was the curse of that covenant, as we even heard this morning in the the baptism form, so Christ comes and earns life so that those who have died in Adam might in him have life. This life is not only given to the children of Abraham, but Christ's identification as a new Adam marks him as the start of a whole new race, the savior of all mankind, which Luke is going to highlight especially throughout his his gospel and throughout Acts, which is sort of part two of his his two volumes. He's going to emphasize the fact that Jesus is the savior of all mankind all throughout Luke and Acts in emphasizing Christ's ministry to the Gentiles. In the very next chapter, right after Jesus' wilderness temptation, when he starts preaching, he says in Luke 4.24 that he will be rejected by his own. And like Elijah and Elisha, he will go to the Gentiles. Again, this is at the very beginning of his ministry. In, in, in Luke 4, he's telling us what his ministry is going to look like and be shaped like, and he's emphasizing, this is why the people in Nazareth want to kill him, that his ministry, like Elijah and Elisha, is going to be to the nations because his own people would not hear him, would not receive him. And even before that, even before he begins his ministry in those opening chapters where we see all of these, um, these great songs from Simeon and Zechariah and Mary telling us about all that's being accomplished in the coming of the Savior into the world, Simeon in Luke 2, when he, he holds the Christ child in his arms... What does he say? But my eyes have seen the salvation that God has prepared for all people, a light of revelation for the Gentiles. There's an emphasis throughout on Christ's ministry to the nations as a new Adam and Savior of all mankind. All the way to Luke 24, where he says that the salvation that he has won in fulfillment of the scriptures by his life, death, resurrection, and ascension will be proclaimed to all nations. That's how the gospel ends, leading us into Acts, where that very thing is fulfilled. Jesus is a new Adam who comes to pass the test that Adam failed to crush the serpent by his death on the cross and bring salvation for every nation. 
In fact, to be the head of a whole new race. That's just one of, of the fulfillment themes that Luke is going to show us. Jesus as a new Adam who crushes the serpent and brings salvation to every nation. Another one of these, these fulfillment themes that he's going to show us is not only Jesus as a second Adam, but Jesus and the greater Exodus who frees us not just from Pharaoh, but Satan, sin, and death. And Luke will highlight this Exodus theme, especially as, as Christ sets his face toward Jerusalem, where in Luke chapter 9, as Christ's glory is, is unveiled for, for but a moment at the Mount of, of Transfiguration, and Moses and Elijah appear and are speaking with him on the Mount of Transfiguration in, in 9 verse 30 and verse 31. Luke is actually the only gospel writer who tells us what Jesus is speaking about with Moses and Elijah. Luke 9.31, it says that they were speaking about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Perhaps if you you follow that footnote footnote down to the the bottom of your page, you'll see that that the Greek word there that's translated departure is, is actually the word exodus. And so Jesus... Is, is on the Mount of, of Transfiguration speaking with Moses about the exodus that he's about to fulfill. The prophet Isaiah, especially in Isaiah 40 through 66, in that last half of, of his, his uh, Old Testament gospel, he, he foretold that a greater exodus would come one day in the future when God would redeem his people fully and finally in a way that, that superseded and fulfilled what, what the first exodus foreshadowed. And Luke here reveals in in, in the Mount of Transfiguration that Jesus is going to be the one to bring about that final exodus. That his journey toward Jerusalem is his journey to bring redemption for his people. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus will become, on the night of the Passover, that Passover lamb. Benjamin Glad says Jesus' death and resurrection are the climax of his redemptive act of delivering his people from enslavement to sin and securing for them a place to dwell in the new creation. Another writer, Alistair Roberts, says, into a a new world flowing with milk and honey where the the slave masters are thrown down and drowned in the sea, but the multitude of faith, both Jew and Gentile, find freedom. That's what Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension accomplishes. He, He frees not just Israel, but all humanity from a greater bondage to Satan, sin, and death. He is the second Adam, but he is also the one who brings about a greater exodus. And then one last theme ushers in the year of Jubilee. One more theme that Luke is going to weave throughout his gospel. He introduces this in Luke chapter 4, the beginning of Christ's public ministry, where Jesus goes into that synagogue in Nazareth on the Sabbath, and he he opens up the scroll to Isaiah chapter 61 and reads, Luke 4.18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That year of the Lord's favor is a reference to the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25, where every 50 years the land would have rest, debts would be forgiven, and slaves would be freed. 
Isaiah proclaimed that God's messianic servant would usher in the, the ultimate year of Jubilee where good news would be proclaimed to the poor, where freedom would be proclaimed to those in bondage, the oil of gladness to those who mourn, and God's people would eat the wealth of nations. He would provide for them abundantly so they'd eat and be satisfied. And Jesus signals at the beginning of his ministry that he, the the second Adam, who's about to accomplish the second exodus, is also the one who will bring about that year of jubilee, proclaiming good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, and the year of the Lord's favor. And throughout Luke's gospel, there's going to be several smaller themes that really flow out of this larger year of jubilee theme where where, uh, Jesus and Luke's fascination, for example, with the poor I mentioned a few weeks ago when we looked at the Eighth Commandment. This is part of, of Christ as the one who ushers in the year of the Lord's favor, which means good news for the poor and the outcast. The kind of people that, that we see Christ gravitating to throughout this book are the poor, the outcast, those whose society would, would ignore, the, the marginalized. Again, to quote um, Benjamin Glad, whenever we come across the marginalized in this third gospel, Luke is inviting his readers to view each of Jesus' encounters with the poor and the outcasts as fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy of the year of the Lord's favor. Not only that, but also this theme of, of feasting that we see throughout Luke's gospel is part of this. As, as Leviticus 25 says that the year of Jubilee will be a time in which God provides abundantly for his people and they will eat and be satisfied. In Isaiah 61, as it picks this up, it says they will eat the wealth of the nations and they will be given a double portion. All of this is part of this prophetic picture in Isaiah and the prophets where, where God will, will feast with his people. So if you know anything about the Gospel of Luke, you you know that almost at every corner, wherever we turn, Jesus is is feasting with with sinners. We see it in Luke 5. We see it in Luke 7, Luke 10, Luke 11, and 14, and 15, and 19, Luke 22, and 24. All of this is, is part of this theme where Jesus is God incarnate feasting with his people as prophesied in the prophets. All of the hopes and longings of God's waiting saints are realized in Jesus. You see that especially in those opening chapters where, where Zechariah and Simeon and Anna and Mary, as they sing of the salvation that is coming, the person of, of Christ, they, they frame their songs in, in terms of, of God's waiting people finally seeing the redemption that was promised. And even... In those opening chapters, those songs they will sing are filled and and laced and bursting with Old Testament language, Old Testament imagery, Old Testament themes. Luke wants us to see that everything Jesus does is according to the scriptures that they might be fulfilled. Which is why the first verse of his gospel is a word of fulfillment and the last chapter is the road to Emmaus where he demonstrates tangibly how his life, death, resurrection, and ascension fulfill the whole sweep of redemptive history. Luke 24 shows how Jesus does precisely what Luke promised in Luke 1, verse 1. And then in volume 2 in the book of Acts, we're going to see the apostolic preaching 
where they, they, they connect the dots and show us precisely all of these ways in which Jesus fulfills the, the prophets, Amos 9 and, and uh, Psalm 118 and Psalm 2 and Psalm 16, how all of the scriptures are fulfilled in him. That's so what Luke is giving us here in his orderly account or, or narrative of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. He's showing us how this is the fulfillment of everything that the law and the prophet said would come to be. And we'll see that even more in the next few weeks with with Mary and and Zechariah and and Simeon's songs that are laced with this Old Testament language. Jesus comes to fulfill what was promised. And Luke wants Theophilus and, and he wants us to be encouraged and assured in our faith by that. That's the last thing that we want to consider this morning that gives us an orderly account of the things that have been fulfilled so that we might have assurance, verse 4, certainty concerning the things that have been taught. I'll be somewhat brief here. That the basic point is that Luke wants to remove any thought from Theophilus or, or us that, that this story of the suffering Messiah was on accident. And as Theophilus looks around, Luke is, is probably writing this some, sometime in, in maybe 60 or, or so AD, sort, sort of towards the, the end of what we're reading of in, in the book of Acts. As, as Theophilus looks around and, and he sees the followers of this suffering Messiah sharing in his suffering, Luke wants him to be assured that this is, in fact, God's plan. In the book of Acts, the church is, is going to suffer, and, and especially on account of this, this radical idea of Gentiles like Theophilus being included. And so he needs to be assured that both the inclusion of Gentiles like him, the identity of Christ as Messiah, and the suffering nature of the church as they follow in the footsteps of that suffering Messiah are all part of God's plan from the Scriptures. All of these threads that he's going to connect from the old to the new in this orderly account of the Son of Man who comes to seek and to save the lost are to give us assurance that Christ is indeed the Savior of the nations. He wants to impress upon our minds the the organic unity and, and beauty of the story of salvation centered in the person and work of Jesus so that all doubt might give way to assurance as we behold the suffering but now exalted Son of Man who has come in fulfillment of every promise of God. Luke wants to address our doubts throughout this book. He writes as a as a pastor, with, a, with an awareness of the fact that we don't always come with things all together. We, we come with doubts. We come lacking certainty. We, we come needing assurance. And he wants to address that doubt by focusing our attention on the gospel and the glory of the Son of Man. All of the things he's going to show us in this orderly account of the Christ of the scriptures is to dissuade our doubt and fill us with assurance that every promise of God is yes and amen in Christ. That Joel and Antonia, the vows that you have made this morning about the doctrine contained in both the Old and New Testaments being the true and complete doctrine of salvation, you need not doubt. And the vows you have made 
to instruct your children in this gospel. Luke wants you to see, he wants us to see that he has given you the means with which to do that in his perfect, infallible, Christ-centered word. Whereas we confess in Lord's Day 6, God began to reveal his gospel already in paradise. He later proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets. He foreshadowed it in the, holy, the, the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law, and he finally fulfilled it in his own beloved son. The Christ that Luke is here going to show us is the Christ of the scriptures everywhere foretold. And, and so as you seek to keep that vow and instruct your children that they might have this assurance too, show them how every promise of God is yes and amen in Christ. How he is the second Adam promised in the garden who keeps God's word then imputes his obedience to us and crushes the serpent by his death on the cross as he dies our death and takes our curse. He leads us out of bondage to Satan, sin, and death in the greater exodus to which that first one pointed as our perfect Passover lamb and leads us into the land flowing with milk and honey in that endless year of jubilee where he lifts up poor sinners like us to feast with him even as we get a foretaste of this afternoon at the Lord's table. Show your children the Christ of all the scriptures. Focus their attention on him that they might have the same certainty and assurance of salvation that Luke longs to impart to us in this book. Even as he gives us an orderly account of the history of salvation, give your children that same gift every day in family worship as you point them to Christ. Give your children that same gift every Lord's Day as you bring them to worship with God's people and may God so work in their hearts to make them more and more like Theophilus, whose name means lover of God. So that Valentina and Nicolas and Santiago and Leonardo too would be brought to see the beauty and glory of Jesus from every page of this book. And like those two disciples, at the end of Luke, in Luke 24, would have their hearts burn within them with love for Christ. May God so bless you as you seek to do that, and may he do that in all of us as we study this gospel and come face to face with the person and work of Jesus. May he use this study of the person and work of Christ, the Son of Man who comes to seek and to save the lost, to transform us into his same likeness and to give us assurance of all that he has done. Amen. Close with this prayer from the book of of Common Prayer about the Gospel of Luke. Almighty God, who called Luke the physician whose praise is in the Gospel to be an evangelist and physician of the soul, may it please thee that by the wholesome medicines of the doctrine delivered by him, all the diseases of our souls may be healed through the merits of thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord that every doubt might give way to assurance. Lord, we pray this for Valentina and Nicolas and Santiago and Leonardo, for Joel and Antonia and every one of us, that you would so work in us by your word. We pray in Jesus' name.